you would, turn to Job 15. So um, we are in the book of Genesis uh, right now with Cason, um, but when I'm preaching, I'm going through the book of Job. So we finished up chapter 14 last time, so we're picking up where we left off. We are in Job 15, and we're going to hopefully get through chapter 19 this morning um, and talk about a few things. So while you're turning there, I'll just give you a quick recap uh, of the book. So the book of Job helps us to understand many of God's attributes, how to study the Bible itself, and the realities of the world we live in. Uh, Job is full of things like that, little tidbits that reveal who God is, what our world is like. Um, And it explains a lot of things about suffering to us. Um, It doesn't answer the question why, but it helps us to see God's control and sovereignty in all things and to be able to trust him even more no matter what we face. Um, That there are highs and lows for the wicked and the just, um, and God is in control of all of that, and we can trust him in that. Um, We know uh, from the first two chapters that Job is blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil. And it's not because his friends say this about him or the locals think this about him or the author thinks it. It's because God himself says it twice. Once in chapter 1, once in chapter 2, God says this about Job. So this is how God sees Job, not just what we think about him. And so we know God does not lie and will not lie. And so we can trust that statement that Job is blameless and upright, fears God and shuns evil, but this does not mean he's sinless, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes Job. But the way God sees him is as someone who is blameless and upright. Um, We see, we don't know exactly who Job is in the lineage uh, from Adam, but there is at least some uh, speculation that There is a Jobab that's mentioned uh, in the lineage in Genesis. I don't think we've quite gotten there in case and study yet. Um, uh, We're getting close, though, because we've already gone through Noah uh, and the flood. But we're going to be getting there where it has him in the lineage, uh, a Jobab, and it says that he was a king in Edom. And so in the very beginning of this book, it described Job as one of the greatest in the land of Edom. And so it could be that that Jobab is this Job. Um, But we do know that he offers sacrifices to God. And so just by that statement alone, we know that at some point in his lineage, he was taught about this practice of offering sacrifices to God. And we know he's past Noah, and we, we just saw that Noah is going to offer sacrifices after they've gotten off the ark, right? We know that uh, even as early as Cain and Abel, we saw that they offered sacrifices to God, and God was pleased with Abel uh, and not with Cain, um, So this heritage of offering sacrifices to God as an atonement for sins is something that was part of Job's regular practice. And so that's also why God would call him blameless and upright. This is someone who offered atoning sacrifices for his sin on a regular basis. Um, But this is before Christ. But what's great about today, and we'll get there soon, is that in chapter 19, we're going to wrap up where we're going to see this prophecy about a coming redeemer. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. We also learn that Satan is under submission to God. Um, there's this idea in our culture that kind of pits good and evil as equal and opposite sides in a battle, but he is not depicted. Satan is not depicted as God's nemesis that God has to repeatedly battle against. We see Satan here as he is 
which is an angel who is submitted against his will. He definitely uh, is opposed to God, but he is simply one of many angels under the submission of God and can do nothing apart from what God gives him permission to do. But Satan is given permission twice to bring devastation on Job and his family. Job loses everything and suffers a painful affliction in his body, but he never loses his integrity. And that's what we see. We see this kind of uh, challenge from Satan. God sets Job before Satan first. It's not Satan who points out Job. God actually points Job out to Satan. He says, have you seen him? And that's the first time. And the second time we see God call him blameless and upright. He sets him before Satan and Satan says, well, he only loves you because his life is so great. If you took that stuff away, he'd curse you. And so God says, you have permission. So he gives him a short leash. You can do this. And so he comes and he takes away all of his livestock, all of his field, all of his grain, and all of his children. And their houses are destroyed all in a day, in a moment. Um, They're destroyed. And then Job praises God. And so then we see another meeting where the angels come before God and God poses the same, same question. Have you, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan again says, well, it's because you didn't let me hurt him. Men will give up anything if they just spare their own lives. And, and as long as they're healthy and happy, then they can give up all that stuff. He'll curse you to your face if you let me. So he wants a little bit more leash and God again allows him. And so he flicks Job with these painful boils and then we see little descriptions throughout the book of what else he's dealing with, uh, lack of appetite, lack of sleep. We don't know exactly what all of the affliction is, but we know Satan's purpose is for Job to curse God to his face. So we know it's extremely painful and awful throughout the book. So that's what we see happen to Job, and yet he always worships God, and he never loses his integrity. But in the middle of being broken down, um, we see him loathe his very existence. He asks, why was I ever born? Why would I be born to go through this, God? This is an extreme tragedy. And he never curses God, never gives up his integrity, but he is a broken, broken man um, who's going through some serious hurt. And so we are in the middle of the book where this argumentative dialogue is going on between Job and his three friends. And the basic idea the basic two sides that are going on is Job is confused and heartbroken and despairing because he knows he isn't deserving of the calamity. Um, But as he cries out for God to answer him and loathing his own existence, his friend's argument is that this could only happen if Job is lying about his sin, some kind of secret sin, something that's going on. And so the two sides are Job who really doesn't even want to argue with them. He's really pleading to God to answer him and explain, please God, take, me, take this calamity away from me. Please answer me. What is going on? Why is this happening? And as he's crying out, loathing his existence and, and in this despair, his friends now accuse him of, being, of hiding some kind of sin uh, of his own. And that's why these things have come on him. So he needs to repent. Um, And Job knows the truth. We know the truth because the book has revealed to us what happened in the heavenly places. Um, But another reminder that Job and his friends have no idea. 
No human at this time that this is going on has any idea of the meetings that took on in the heavenly places where God and Satan had this conversation. We do as readers later on. And so uh, very grateful for that. And here's how God is still today in this moment, this morning, using Job's suffering in order for us to understand God even better and understand his word. Um, so let's look at this outline real quick of the book of Job. Um, so we started off with an introduction of who Job was. We get a real setting of a real place and a real you know, time and place in history. Um, and then we see this heavenly places meeting of the angels presenting themselves before God. And we have the first challenge. And so God presents Job. Satan challenges God and says he only worships you because of all his stuff. So he takes away all of his wealth, all of his possessions, and all of his children are killed. But Job still holds to his integrity. So a second challenge, and we read about a second meeting in heaven where this challenge is brought, and then Satan's allowed to afflict Job with boils all over his body. And then we see a week of mourning. So the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are the name of uh, Job's friends who live a ways off, and they decide to come together to comfort him. That's their plan, and they start off well because they come and say nothing. <laughs> uh, that's a good lesson to me. You know, It's good for me to know sometimes the best thing you can do is just be there and not try to fix it and not try to say anything. And so they have this week of mourning where no one speaks. They just sit and weep and mourn together. And that's it's kind of a beautiful picture of how we can, we can mourn with those who mourn, as Jesus tells us to do. Um, and then we hear Job's first lament. So Job breaks the silence and is lamenting his life um, where he is. And because of that, we start these three rounds of arguments. And that's the biggest, largest section in this book, is this series of arguments going back and forth. So Job has a lament, and then we see round one, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar tear into Job, and he gets to respond in between each one. And the thing that you'll see is that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar only speak to Job and only speak about God. And what we see in Job's responses is he speaks back to his friends, but then he speaks to God. He's the only one speaking with God and pleading for God to speak. Which is ironic because the, the friends actually accuse him at certain points that he needs to cry out to God. That if he would just cry out to God, God would hear him. Well, that's what he's been doing the whole time. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting thing. So, and then we have, we'll get to this interesting character, Elihu. And we don't hear much about where he comes from or who he is. We just know that he's younger than all the other guys. And then he gets to speak for like two or three chapters, maybe four chapters. And we hear this interesting perspective that kind of brings a balance to the two sides of the argument, um, that God causes suffering to all for his purposes. And the other argument, which is suffering only comes to the wicked and only good things come to those who are righteous, right? And Elihu kind of brings this balance about God is in control. And so we kind of see this, um, and then we get to hear from God. And that's what I'm really looking forward to. We hear God just speak. Uh, for four chapters, and it's this incredible moment where he speaks to Job. Um, and so I don't, it sounds, it doesn't say specifically, but it sounds like it's the actual voice of God that Job is hearing, 
um, as he speaks. And so we get these amazing chapters. When we get there, it's going to be exciting because there's actually more information about creation than Genesis has. <laughs> so we've studied the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and really it's all in one, a little bit in chapter 2. Um, but we actually see a lot more details in the book of Job whenever God starts speaking of his creation. So it's really, really pretty neat, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. And then we have our conclusion, how it all wraps up. Uh, Job is restored, um, has more children, and he's restored twice as many flocks as he had before, um, and God restores him. And so that's what we're looking for. So today, we are in the middle, we are starting round two. And so we heard of the arguments, yeah. So we had, we've already heard from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar with Job's rebuttals in between one round. And now we are back to Eliphaz, his round two. So that's where we are here in chapter 15. Uh, most of what you need is going to be on the screen for you if it comes from somewhere else, but I will have you turn to Luke here in just a little while, and I'll let you know when we get there. So here we are, chapter 15, and we hear from Eliphaz for the second time. Chapter 15, verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? So the east wind in their culture, they understood, was a violent and scorching wind. It was a violent scorching wind that came from the east. Uh, fairly regularly, they knew that it burned up crops and dried up everything. So he's saying, Job, your words are destructive. Um, that's what the east wind is about. Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. Um, there's a, a common phrase you've probably heard before. It comes from Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So whenever he tells him here, you cast off fear, he's talking about it in a negative sense, right? There are certain things we should be brave and certain moments when we should cast off fear and be brave and put our faith and trust in Christ. But this is in a negative sense. You don't have fear of the Lord as you should, so you aren't wise. Um, you're a fool. And restrain prayer before God. Verse 5, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Um, when he says your own mouth condemns you, last time that I spoke, we talked about a mediator, a need for a mediator. And we had Job talk about, if only there could be someone who could stand between me and God as a mediator is what he talked about. And we know that that's who Christ is. He stands in that gap for us now. And Job was calling for that, uh, this look to the future. So in saying that your own mouth condemns you, he's saying you don't need a trial. You don't need a mediator. You're already proven guilty by your own words, um, which is not true. Verse seven, are you the first man who was born or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? I'm looking forward to hearing the counsel of God at the end of this book. Uh, do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you and the words spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. 
So he's accusing Job of being arrogant. You think way too highly of yourself, Job. You think you're wise and knowledgeable. Um, We see a lot that Eliphaz draws on his own personal experience and what he hears from others. And so he's talking about the aged, the gray-haired and the aged are among us. We can just follow the example of history that came before us and know the truth, right? We've talked about this, that there's a balance there. We should draw from history. We need to learn from history. History is incredibly valuable. And the Bible's full of history. Um, We should learn from our experiences. God wants us to do that, to pay attention to what's going on in your life and learn from your own mistakes, from your own successes, from interactions with people around you. You should learn from those things. But foundationally, the most valuable, the most reliable is the Word of God. Uh, And so Eliphaz kind of drifts from the Word of God, and he's mostly focused on his own personal experiences and from uh, the elders, the people who came before him in history. Uh, Verse 14 through 16. In a... I am going to have you turn back real quick. Go back to Job chapter 4 real quick. So I want to show you this real fast. Job chapter 4, turn with me. And we're going to see that Eliphaz is making a statement here that's very similar to one that he made before. So look first, Job chapter 4, verse 12. And you might remember this. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, the hair on my body stood up. So he had this experience in the night where some kind of spiritual event took place. And that's what he's drawing from. So if you skip down there to verse 17 through 19, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth? So these aren't the words of Eliphaz. Eliphaz is quoting what this spirit said to him. And we discussed this before, that this isn't the Holy Spirit. This is another spirit. It's very likely that it was Satan himself, because Satan is wanting Job to curse God. So he's using his friends against him to try to torment him even further. So he comes and and has this experience with Eliphaz. Well, here we are. So go back now to today, chapter 15, verse 14. Chapter 15, verse 14. What is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less... Man, who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Now, I'm not saying the whole statement is a false statement. It is true that we are fallen, that we are sinful, and that if we were to stand before God on our own merits, there would be no merit. We cannot do that. It is only through Christ that we do that. But again, Eliphaz is drawing from some spiritual... Uh, experience that he had in the past and now making this statement again. And very likely that was not the Holy Spirit. And he's drawing from a spiritual experience, calling it holy, calling it righteous, calling it correct and true and holding fast to it as my foundation for what I believe. 
And, you know, I've met people in the past that this is, this is what they do. They had an experience, and they thought because things worked out and went my way, it must have been God, it must have been the Holy Spirit. God did this, and then they hold fast to that, even if sometimes it contradicts what the Bible already says about the Holy Spirit or what it says about God or what it says about what's true. It's like, well, I had this experience. You can't tell me God didn't do it. Well, you know, there are more than just the Holy Spirit. There are lots of spiritual things. And if you invite those in your life, you may not be hearing the truth. And you shouldn't hold fast merely to your experience. You test your experience with the, with the scripture. Um, and so here we kind of see that kind of weakness in Eliphaz's argument. So moving along, verse 17. What does it start with? I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen, I will declare. Again, Eliphaz, he's drawing from, he puts too much weight on personal experience. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. So for 18 through 26, we see this argument, the wicked only receive trouble, right? And we know that that's not always true. I mean, look around today. Um, We see plenty of wicked people who are successful and happy and prospering and just going about their business. Uh, David points it out in the Psalms at various times. Why is it that the evil prosper? You know, he asked God, why do the evil prosper? So um, there's some truth here, right? We can see it uh, in our own experience. We know like there are some obvious ones. You know, if you if you make a bunch of foolish choices, what's going to turn out is not good for you, right? And if you are making wise choices, you know, the book of Proverbs is full of things that are not hard and fast. If you do this, uh, one of the most commonly used is, I don't know, word for word, but direct your children in the way that they should go and they will not depart from it. That's not 100%. You know, everybody makes their own choices and parents who do really, really well to point their children to the truth of scripture still have children who defy it, turn against it and move along. But in a general sense, it's a, it's a principle. And, and so we see principles applied here wrongly. So the principles are right. If a wicked person continues to act wickedly, then it's not going to work out for them in many, many, many cases. But it's not hard and fast. It's a principle. And so they're using that principle to accuse Job. This happened to you because you're a sinner, Job. You need to repent. Uh, Verse 27, though he has covered his face with fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, so fat in their context has to do with wealth, building up wealth and protection uh, is actually healthy to be fat <laughs> in their culture. We, we are definitely against it now, <laughs> um, but in their culture, it represents wealth and health. Um, and so even though he's, everything's working out great for him, 
He dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. We see this painful, hurtful statement because Job's children were killed as the house collapsed on them. And so in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins, uh, he's just really uh, hurting Job by saying this. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. So this is just that, that same argument going on. And once again, the wicked receive punishment, and that's it. And we, we can trust in that. So that's that, that same empty argument. Chapter 16, Job's response. So here we see in the first five verses, Job is basically saying, if you were in my place... I would treat you so much better than you're treating me. So here's what he says. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? When Job gave his first lament, he was lamenting. He wasn't asking for a response from them. They didn't even ever need to talk at all. This wasn't meant to be an argument. Job wasn't being argumentative, he was lamenting. And so he says, what provokes you that you answer? Why even go through this at all? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. If I was in your shoes, I would treat you better than you're treating me. Verse six, though I speak... My grief is not relieved, and if I remain silent, how am I eased? And Job is, he's saying, it seems like I can't do anything to feel better than this. Uh, I, I feel like I should speak, and that should help. But he says, though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? So whether I speak or don't speak, it just seems like I'm spinning my wheels. I don't know what to do. I can't. I can't come back from this. But now he has worn me out. So here he turns and he's, he's not talking to God yet, but he's talking about God here. God, he has worn me out. You, God, have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. Here's another evidence of what Job has gone through. He's lost his appetite. He's very, very thin. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. Does God hate Job? It's not a, not a, not a true statement here, um, but it is uh, reasonable um, considering what he's going through. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. Satan is our adversary. God is not our adversary. 
They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Now here he's talking about the friends again, right? They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek and they gather together against me. He's talking about his friends here, supposed. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. So here Job again is pointing out his innocence, holding on to his integrity, knowing that he is not deserving of this, that God is doing this for some reason he cannot understand. Verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood, and let my cry have no resting place. So this is from, and I've got it on the screen for you here, from Genesis 4, verse 10, there is an expression that came from God that I imagine would have been passed down through Job's generation. And so whenever Cain killed Abel, God came to Cain and he asked this question. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So God is aware of the injustice of Cain's murder and of the death of Abel. His blood cries out to me. And so here Job is drawing on that expression, O earth, do not cover my blood, and let my cry have no resting place. He knows that this isn't just, because he's not being fairly punished. Uh, God is doing something, and so he's saying, let God hear me, let God see my anguish. And God does, and God is going to answer. Surely even now my witness is in heaven, and my evidence is on high. There it is, the mediator again. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God, as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Job chapter 17. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. Flattery is, um, you know, sometimes we feel flattered by compliments. And that's fine if it's true, but flattery in this sense means it's false. It's just making up ways in order to butter somebody up. It's, it's false praise, flattery. Um, so he's saying, he who speaks flattery, these false praises to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. So this byword is when your name is used as a reference for something. And so some common ones that we might still use from the Bible, from the New Testament, is calling someone Judas, right? You would call someone Judas who you feel like betrayed you in some way, right? They were your friend, but somehow they went behind your back or betrayed you or something. You might call someone Judas 
right? His name is a byword for someone who's a betrayer, right? We might call someone a doubting Thomas, who like, we have all this evidence for making a claim about something, but they're like, no, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it, right? We'd call them a doubting Thomas, right? Because Thomas was one of the disciples, the apostles, who everybody came and said they saw Jesus. We saw him, we saw him, we saw him. He's like, until I put my hand in his side and feel the nail holes in his hands, I won't believe. Well, Jesus comes and lets him do that. So um, we're going to jump over to Luke and look at, at part of that scene as well here in a little bit. But that's using your name as a byword, right? So in Job's sense, at this particular time when he says, I've become a byword, it's for something negative like Judas, right? Job, oh, you know, if someone in, in the community was going through, you know, major losses in their livestock or something or whatever, like his name was a negative byword. Oh, you're like Job. Um, that's what he's become. But what's interesting is that Job's name still is a byword right? When we talk about the faithfulness or the perseverance of Job or the trials of Job. So I have this, this other uh, good context from James 5.11 on the screen. It says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. So in the context here, he's actually talking about the prophets of old, the ones who were killed and persecuted because they were bringing the word of God. And so Job is in that group. And I think Cason uh, actually talked about this in his last sermon. Uh, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So Job is still this byword for us of seeing this perseverance and seeing something about God that he is compassionate and merciful. And so we see that here in the book of James. So yeah, that's what that statement's about. In his context, it's negative. And now because of what God has done, it's positive. He is still a a positive byword. And I have become one in whose face men spit. Here we are in verse 7, chapter 17, 7. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Job pointing out his innocence again. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. Some other time, please get out of here and leave me alone. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, Where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Total brokenness and hopelessness in Job. And then here, chapter 18, we have another so-called friend who's just going to batter him even more with words. Chapter 18 Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long till you put an end to words? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? In other words, who do you think you are, Job? 
verse 5, the light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. So we're just going to see Bildad's argument is the same argument it's been. Same argument, over and over again. Broken record here. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him in the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side, and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved, and the destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent, and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent, who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below, and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. Again, this is all just describing the wicked. This is what a wicked person has to look forward to. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither sun nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. This is another just slap in the face of someone who has lost all of his children. Those in the West are astonished at his day, as those in the East are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Accusing Job there at the end. Now, we make it to chapter 19, and we're going to see this incredible prophetic statement from Job um, through the Holy Spirit speaking here. So we're going to see this uh, here in just a minute. Here we go. So chapter 19, then Job answered and said, how long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? So Job is responding, this is hurtful. We are seeing these statements that they're making at him are breaking him down even more. He says, you're breaking me into pieces with your words. Uh, really goes against that uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's just not not a wise statement. That is not true. Words are extremely powerful and hurtful if used in that way. Uh, verse three, these 10 times you have reproached me. Uh, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Um, I'm not sure about that statement, these 10 times, because they haven't had 10 uh, you know, back and forths yet. I'm not sure what this, the, the number must be significant. I'm not sure about that. I, I tried to look into it, didn't find anything this week. Um, but, well, in the last two days, really. But uh, I'm not sure about that statement. I'll, I'll see if I can find something next time. Uh, and if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. At the very least, at least we see that Job gives the credit to God for being in control in this situation. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. This is true. Job is not aware of what's going on. It is darkness to him. He can't see what God's doing yet. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. 
possible evidence there again that maybe he was a king in Edom, unless that's just figurative. Uh, he breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Uh, here, we're going to see how he's pointing out. Uh, there's going to be several things here that I think are just metaphorical and figurative. He's not being literal. He's pointing out in this next little passage uh, how isolating this ordeal has been because of the suffering and because of what he's gone through and then because of how his friends are treating him. This has been completely isolating. We know that his wife already told him, just curse God and die. You know, she's kind of given up on him. Uh, so he's faced that and his friends are just battering him with words and accusing him. So these next few statements are all about how isolating this feels. Um, my relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. And so here's where that statement comes from, from way back in the book of Job. So anytime you hear somebody say that, you say, hey, do you know that's actually in the Bible, skin of my teeth? It means to just barely make it out. He's just, he should be dead is basically, you know, his argument. Like, I should be dead. I'm only barely alive by however thick the outside of my teeth are is how much I'm hanging on to life right now. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O oh, you... O oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? So we see just how broken down a person can get, how much anguish and how much sorrow they can be in the midst of, and still be able to see um, just this hope that we have in Christ. Um, so we're, we're going to see this example Job doesn't know Christ at this point, um, likely as we talked about because of his lineage. Uh, you know, God told Adam and Eve that there would be one that came from them that would be their redeemer, you know, that would save them, that would be, you know, the one who restored them. And so that's going to be passed on and Job is going to know about this. But uh, we're, we're just going to see this incredible statement about the truth. So starting off here, verse 23, oh, that my words were written Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. He doesn't know that that's going to happen, but it did. You know, here we are. We're reading it. Uh, it was written down and preserved for us to read and how blessed we are because of it. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. That's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, I wish I, I had uh, some of the history. You can look it up, but just some of the stories. They have stories of these different times in history where there was someone really, really against Christianity, either because of their religion or because of atheism, who were like, 
the Bible is going to be gone. I'm going to end it. We're going to destroy them all. We're going to get rid of them. There's just some of these crazy, amazing stories. There's one that was a Frenchman who uh, he made a statement about how a year from now the Bible will be no more. It'll be considered this crazy fantasy that we can't believe we ever believed. And his own office was used as a storehouse for Bibles to be taken out. It was like the center point where they would deliver Bibles to villages around that area. And his desk was taken and used um, to store them and to do that. So it's kind of an interesting. But there's tons of stories like that where God has preserved this Bible for us. These words are precious to him and should be to us. So anyways, uh, verse 25, here we go. So we're seeing Jesus here in the book of Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. This is a profound statement from Job. We know that this is the oldest story in the book, the oldest book in the series of books that make up the Bible. And all the way back then, he has this statement. And it's so specific. It says, after my skin is destroyed, this I know that my flesh, in my flesh I shall see God. It's very specific about that. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ as the first one. And in the end, when we're resurrected, we're given new bodies. It's not purely spiritual. And so John actually, uh, in Second John, First or Second John, talks about uh, if anyone comes and doesn't teach Jesus in the flesh, then you know they're a false teacher or a false prophet, right? Because that's an important thing that Jesus rose bodily and that we will be like him, right? So I want to go over to Luke twenty four thirty five through forty three. So if you hold your place here in Job, we're almost done in chapter 19, but go over to Luke in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 24, and we're going to start in verse 35. So Luke 24, 35. And so this is after Jesus has risen from the grave and some people have seen him. Peter has seen him. And a few of the ladies have seen him and they're telling the rest of the group, the rest of his followers, the disciples uh, that were in the upper room um, hiding out after Jesus was crucified. They come and they tell them. So they're all there talking. And in verse 35, Luke 24, 35, it says, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So there were two guys that were traveling, walking between cities and Jesus came and they didn't recognize him. Which is an interesting thing. I, there's, that's just something else to look into later. But why, why didn't they recognize him? Jesus must have done something in some way to disguise himself. I don't know. But he talks to them about the whole gospel and explains it all to him. And then they realize it's him and then he disappears. <laughs> and uh, so that's when they come, they make it to the house or where everyone is and uh, explain. And that's what this is saying. They talked about the things that had happened on the road. They were traveling and talking with him and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Shalom. That's the, the typical 
uh, Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace to you, okay? But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. So that's the first thought, right? Because bodies don't walk through walls, right? They don't just pop up and appear. So the first thought is, Jesus, this is a spirit, right? This can't be real, but watch what Jesus does. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So this is an incredible body that Jesus has, that he can just appear somewhere, but he is flesh and bone. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe, can you imagine? They still did not believe. For joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. So this is a true bodily resurrection from death, which is what's promised to us because of our Redeemer, because of what he's done for us. And here, so going back, Job, hopefully you kept your place there. Job says that in my flesh, I shall see God. This is just, it's a beautiful, incredible statement. And this is another reason that Job helps us understand the Bible. You know, so many people think that the books of the Bible were just decided on by a bunch of men in like the first, like 1100s or something like that. Um, That there was a council and they just decided. No, we, God decided the books. (laughs) We know what the books are because of the information that's in them. Job is meant to be in the Bible because it says all of this, that I know that my Redeemer lives. This is why we know we can trust that Job belongs in the Bible because the Holy Spirit made it belong, not because some men decided, yeah, let's include that one. Yeah, we'll put in this. That's kind of the attitude towards how the Bible is constructed, and that is far from the reality. Where are we? Verse 27 whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And that should be true for all of us um, who have put our faith and trust in Christ. If you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? So Job is saying, look, even, even if you guys are right, even if you were right that this is because of my sin, it's still between me and God. This isn't even your fight. It's not even your place to accuse me to begin with. The root of the matter is found in me. Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. And so I have Revelation 14, 6 through 7 here on the screen. Then I saw another angel. So this is from from John in Revelation. This is his vision that he sees. And so he's talking about what he sees. He says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel. This is the gospel. To preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So the tribe is the same forever. The gospel is the same no matter who you are or where you live, what your circumstances are. This is the gospel saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So his judgment. So again, we see this foreshadowing of the future 
from Job that you may know there is a judgment. So though the Redeemer does come and stand on the earth, and we can look forward to that, the gospel, which we call the good news, needs a little bit of the bad news to understand the good news, right? Um, There's so many people walking around that say that they're saved who would deny that hell exists and deny that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross atoned for their sins. Well, then what are you saved from? What are we saved from? If you're saved, you have to be saved from something that's coming. Well, what's coming? The judgment. The judgment is coming. And though even Christ, Christ is our redeemer, and he does love us, we're not, we're not setting any of that aside. Christ died in our place. That's incredible love. He does love us. He loves each and every one of us. And he did that for us. He's also the judge, right? And so many people know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And Jesus is saying this, right? John 3.16 is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he goes on to say that I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. And so that's what we hold on to. But in the same statement, he says, but anyone who does not believe stands condemned already. So to say that Jesus doesn't condemn anyone is misunderstanding him. He came not to condemn the first time. And he offers this gift of salvation through his sacrifice on the cross. But he's also the judge. And if you don't put your faith and your trust in him for what he's already accomplished and already done, then you stand condemned. And that is the gospel. And it's the part we don't really like. We just want to tell people that God loves them. And you should, because it's true. But we should also point them to what they can be saved from that God is the judge and that he does have a standard and we can come to understand it, to follow it, to obey it, to live it out as we study his word. He has spoken. People want to hear the voice of God. They want to hear God and that's great because God can do that and does do that, but he did that. This is a lot of words that he wrote and we sometimes don't want to put in the effort to read it. It's a lot, you know, and it does take time out of your life and your schedule. Trust me, it's worth it. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Jesus. Again, that was Jesus saying that to Satan about the scriptures, that this is what we live on. You know, we need this just as much as you need to put protein in your body to keep you going. Like, You need the word of God. And here it is. It's available. It's on my phone and my computer. And I've got multiple books of it at home. It's available to us. And God wants us to pick it up. And he wants us to read it. And he wants us to study it. And we can trust it. I mean, isn't that great? I mean, you turn on TV or get on YouTube or something like that. I can't trust a word from anybody on it. I love having something that I can trust. This is something I can trust when I read it that is right. Um, and I love having something in my life that I can trust, and here it is. What a gift. What a gift this is. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the end of chapter 19. We'll pick up in 20 the next time. 
Um, the question we should always ask after we've read, after we've studied, like today, is what is our response? What do we do with this information? We don't just want to take it and do nothing. We want to respond. How do I respond, God? What can I do? And so for me, as I think about it, um, as I interact with people or work through difficulties or make tough decisions, I don't want to forget God's word and his control and his faithfulness in all things. I want to be mindful of him. We are not wise enough to have all the answers. I'm definitely not wise enough to have all of the answers, but I can have enough wisdom to know that God does. He has all of the answers and he is trustworthy. And so I ask the Holy Spirit that he would remind me. We should ask the Holy Spirit to remind us to be mindful of God to be mindful of God and his word. Um, and the Holy Spirit's faithful to do that if, if we'll ask him. So that should be our response when we read these things, that we put God, the truth of the gospel of Christ, at the center of our thinking as we approach difficult people, difficult situations, difficult decisions. Um, we should remember, okay, God is in control. He knows where I'm at. He knows what's going on. And he knows what I'm about to say. And so I want to be, I want to honor him with my words and my actions. And whenever we put him in the front of our mind, before we do those things, we can, we can bring honor to him and we can share that gospel with others. And so that, that should be our prayer and our response as we go through the week. Let's pray.